In today's episode, as we begin a brand new series on the pastoral epistles, we open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written by the Apostle Paul and, of course, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, are a treasure trove of invaluable insights into the early Christian church and God's expectations for its leaders. But in a world today that continues to reject God and daily invents new deviancies to worship, we need what God offers us here in these letters more than ever, especially when many Christians have been deceived into thinking that the future of the church lies in mimicking the fallen and dying culture. So, these letters offer a roadmap for navigating the challenges of leadership and teaching, making them not only essential for understanding the role of pastors, for which they are very essential, but also it's good for all Christians who want to live a life that honors God's will. This morning, as we turn specifically to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul pens this letter to the young pastor Timothy, who he has left to shepherd the Ephesus congregation. He wants him to teach and defend the faith. And so, in this very first chapter, we find Paul leading with two serious concerns, preventing false teaching and immorality, and promoting the chief focus of the church, that Christ came to save sinners. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Friday, February 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel with foreign language resources translated and rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. So joining the conversation this morning, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, the Reverend David Fleming. He's pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he's also executive director for spiritual care for doxology. Good morning, Pastor Fleming. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's a joy to be with you. Oh, I am so excited to have you on, brother. This is the first time that I have had you as a guest on the program. And so I'd love to hear how God is working through you and through your congregation there in Grand Rapids. Thanks. Well, it's a great joy to be with you. I don't think we've spoken before that I recall, and uh, it's a joy to be with you. So uh, the Lord's blessed our Savior Church and School abundantly here with uh, many excellent sermons. I happily am now the associate pastor. I was senior pastor for 27 years or so. Um, now Jeremy Swem is our senior pastor. He's outstanding and excellent at delivering the gospel of Christ. Today we had a little celebration at our parish school. All the parents of the full-time teachers at our school came from all over the country. A number of them are pastors, even a seminary professor, uh, Cantor at another church. They all came and surprised their their sons and daughters who are teachers here, and the students all were in on this. It was a, a delightful time to celebrate how the Lord works for our fa- through our families to encourage in the faith. Our parish school has been around for oh, longer than the congregation, actually, and uh, continues to thrive in teaching Christ. And then I also serve with Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel, as executive director. And we've been privileged during a COVID time and post-COVID time now 
to provide additional retreats for pastors and commission ministers of the Luther Church Missouri Synod, uh, assisting them by uh, to hold faith and a good conscience, like Paul will say to Timothy here, and uh, to delight in the gift of the call the Lord has given them to serve as people and find joy and peace in that. Excellent. Yes, I was hoping you'd also tell us a little bit about that, too. Uh, how long has doxology been around? I, I'm, I've not personally participated in it, but I have a lot of friends who are fellows and have participated in it in one way or the other. Uh, just maybe explain a little bit more about that for people who've not really heard about it. Certainly. Doxology uh, had its first retreats in 2008, although doxology goes farther back than that with a bunch of research on the pastoral office and the care of pastors. Its goal uh, for these 15 years is to train pastors in the ancient art of the care of souls, being physicians of the soul. The German word for that is Seelsorger. And we think that this is an aspect of the pastoral office that is absolutely vital. We'll, we'll see it in this section of uh, Timothy today, too, about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, where the good physician comes and heals our souls. And, and this vital part of the pastoral office is the, the ongoing care of souls, the art of pastoral care, which uh, doxology works on training us in and improving our skills in. It's an ongoing conversation. Being a pastor isn't just knowing a bunch of facts and delivering them. It's also the, the art, the craft of caring for the particular soul words placed before us and delivering to them the right medicine from our Lord at the right time. Wonderful. Well, I tell you what, there is a lot to get into in this first uh, chapter of the letter, our first delve into the pastoral epistles. So if uh, we would be so kind, please start us off with some prayer before we get started. Absolutely. Thank you. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to be the Savior of sinners Thank you for uh, delivering Paul from his rebellion against your son and his church and for equipping him and Timothy with the gospel of Christ and your spirit to proclaim uh, this glorious gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit this day to receive these words with thanksgiving and knowledge and grow in love for you and in joyful service to our neighbors. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 1 begins very simply with what is a common introduction to these letters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother, that's the first two verses, but introduce us to 1 Timothy, and, and maybe give us a little bit of background on where Paul is at in his life, who Timothy is, why he's writing, um, all that sort of stuff, everything we might need to know to really understand the background of this letter. Well, as you mentioned before, Timothy was placed in Ephesus by Paul uh, to care for that congregation. Ephesus was very dear to Paul. That was the lo the longest he served anywhere. He served there about three years, and he 
you know, could not stay. He, he was a missionary, right? So he's, he places Timothy there to care for that flock. And Ephesus, boy, they, they had their challenges, right? From uh, some, uh, a Jewish community there, a small Jewish community there, but also from Roman influence, the uh, temple to, uh, uh, is it Diana is there? And, uh, and so there's all sorts of wild ideas in Ephesus. And uh, Paul needs somebody he really trusts to be there. Timothy had become a follower of Jesus and had uh, w- w- linked up with Paul in Acts chapter 16 when Paul was in Lystra. Uh, and uh, Timothy later, well, in Philippians 2, Paul tells us what he thinks of Timothy. Uh, and I just think this is worth reading. It's uh, Philippians 2 uh 19 uh, to 24, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that the, the, in the Lord that I will shortly come myself also. Do you see that complete trust he's got in Timothy and that they are father and son, right? So Paul is his father in that Paul confessed the faith to him and called him in, was the agent by which the Lord called Timothy into the ministry and uh, and Timothy's been a true son to him, loves his father and delights in him. So that's where we are here as we get started with this. Uh, Paul uh, acknowledging that he's sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's an apostle. It's a sent one. This is by the command of the father. Interestingly, our fa- the father's called our savior here. And, of, and beautifully, Jesus Christ is called our hope. I think that's a little unusual. You could correct me if I'm wrong on that, Pastor Boo, um, that for calling Jesus our hope, uh, which is such a beautiful encouragement that in our Lord Jesus, we always have a future uh, and that eternal future through him that is certain and steadfast no matter what happens in this life. We have certain hope in our Lord Jesus, which gives us hope in all the various challenges of our life uh, that we face. Uh, we're, we're never alone in this, right? Uh, our Lord holds us and our future together. And, uh, and then to call Timothy my true child in the faith, as he did there in Philippians as well that uh, he's faithful to Paul, he uh, works with Paul well, uh, and, they're, uh, and they're both about the same thing, proclaiming the saving gospel of Christ. And then I do find that grace, mercy, and peace to be a little unusual. Uh, I think that introduction Paul uses, usually uses grace and peace, but this grace, mercy, and peace, I think he only uses it with Timothy, um, perhaps with Titus, I'm trying to remember. But I, this that, that addition of the word mercy in there is a little unusual. I wonder, I don't know, what do you think? I, and I shouldn't be asking you questions, but... No, I, you can. Go. Just, just think it out loud. I wonder if it isn't because this is one of his letters to a fellow pastor. 
And we have this ministry, Paul will say, by the mercy of God. Uh, we're not pastors, brother, because we're such outstanding men of, uh, you know, a great uh, holiness and power and all that. We're, we're in the ministry because God's merciful. He called sinners to deliver his gospel. And Paul will emphasize that about himself, of course, in this section. And perhaps that's what he's adding here by saying, not only grace and peace to you, but mercy also to you, Timothy, the mercy that called you to be a servant of this gospel. Yeah, I mean, the concept of you know grace, mercy, and peace isn't completely foreign to the Bible. We see that phrase in Second John, of course, that's not written by Paul, and Jude, right. uh, but oh, the yeah. only time that... The only time that Paul uses it, just as you've pointed out, is here in First Timothy and Second Timothy. He actually does not use it in uh, Titus that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, so I do see that there's, there's actually two different things here that I also— So Paul is often uh, defending his apostleship. We see that, right? He's an apostle right. of Christ Jesus, and he doesn't go into the longer, you know, not by man but by God and all that stuff, but he does say, by the command of God our Savior— but using that God, our Savior, uh, probably in focus is the God the Father. So God the Father, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope, I also think is an unusual uh, structure because God the Father being the Savior is very typical for Old Testament language. When Christ comes on the scene, typically people see that you know God's salvific activity is, is clearly uh, visible in Christ, and so Christ is the Savior. Uh, but here we have God the Father being the Savior— Christ Jesus being the hope, I think that really is going to connect to probably some of the false teachings that are happening in the church, or at least the ones that that young Timothy might encounter. Uh, but all of these things that you said, yeah, they stand out to me too. But the mercy, and, and I like what you're saying, I've never thought of it that way before, but the mercy, I, Lord, isn't that true though? <laughs> isn't it true that, <laughs> that, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father, from but mercy, Lord, have mercy. How often have we said that? And in, in the pastor's role, that's exactly what we need, because we are, and, and Timothy, speaking of Timothy, speaking of all seal sorgers and those who are called to public ministry, you are called to do a job that you are not qualified for and can never do perfectly according to the uh, job description. Uh, so Amen. you constantly have to be receiving forgiveness while also delivering forgiveness. You have to live a life above reproach while being literally um, uh, restrained by your sinful human nature from doing that perfectly. So it requires an extreme uh, clinging to, to that we all should do as all Christians, but it, it requires a clinging to Christ's forgiveness that uh, I think you would only understand if you're put in that position. So, I, yeah, I definitely see mercy as standing out. And, you know, and I think as you were saying that, Pastor Boo, I've, how beautifully you put that. I, this is this is true also in my work as a father. It would be true for my wife as a mother, and my work as a husband, my work as a son. Right in all of these, what we see our in our vocations, we see our failures. We're we're really not up for these tasks, are we? And the Lord calls us. To them, and then happily, as well, he had mercy in calling us into all of those tasks, and continues to supply that mercy uh, uh, to to cover over our failures and uh, uh, to sustain. 
Well, it looks like we're having some technical difficulties, uh, so we'll get our guest back right away. Hopefully, we'll connect with him extremely soon. Uh, but before then, uh, before we get him back, uh, I guess I'll just talk a little bit, right? So uh, I don't know what the point he was building up to is, so I can't finish his thought for him. I'm but sorry. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, hey, he's back. He's back. Uh, thank you for coming back. Yeah, I had no idea what I was going to say, but I'm sure it would have been uh, just completely enlightening, but you're going to say something much better, I'm sure. <laughs> Go ahead. I doubt brother. it. So I can't, <laughs> I don't know where I tripped it off. I don't know what happened here. So, um, well, uh, we were talking about just in general. Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. In general, we were talking about how, well, what I was going to say, and I joke about it being enlightening. Uh, what I was going to say is we have this, um, focus on pastors in these pastoral epistles. And, oh, and that's yes. going to be, that's going to come out again and again and again. I don't want the listeners at home to think that, you know, we're somehow elevating pastors above the vocations that God gives other people. This happens to be the pastoral epistles. And you were very rightfully bringing into the conversation this reality that this command to be God's instrument in whatever vocation you're called in, for instance, father, mother, etc. Um, if I understand you correctly, those are also um, supposed to be lived out standards that without God's help, we can never even get close to it. And so we all really need God's grace, mercy, and peace. Absolutely. Exactly where I was going, right? And then I was just going to emphasize that the grace and peace are, are stunningly beautiful words, too, which we could spend days on <laughs> on their own. And this peace accomplished for us by the sacrifice of Christ, uh, which he what, brings into the upper room with the fearful disciples and brings into every room of our life, peace be with you, uh, accomplished by his saving work. You know, Timothy, we always think of him as being the young pastor, maybe in contrast to Titus. Uh, is it young? Is it a uh, little bit more new? Uh, what we do know from Tim about Timothy, we get from 2 Timothy, which is that he was raised up in the faith, right? His mom and grandma brought him up in the faith. Um, so we have here a young man who's essentially been Christian his whole life, brought up in the faith. He's now being uh, left as a pastor. He's called to that work. Paul is giving him this guidance. Why do we—maybe you don't know the answer, or maybe you do. Why do we talk about him being the young guy? I, I always think of him like a fresh-out-of-seminary kind of guy when compared to Titus. Is there anything in the Scripture that supports that? You know, off the top of my head, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though, right? Because we always think I of do. him as being yeah, the young guy. Right. Yeah. right. Always, <laughs> he's always seen that way, but I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe it's because, you know, Paul sees him as a son and that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, we do have text later. We do have, obviously, we have text later. Uh, I think it's in chapter five that says, you know, don't let them. Um, oh, yes. Right. Mark your right. Youth. Because of your youth. Right. Right. Uh, but even point. even that specific text, I think that's a lot to build. I mean, we still don't know how old he is. Is he, you know, a young 40 <laughs> or is he? Or is he brand so, new in the faith, you know? I know tradition tells us his ministry was probably about 40 years. Um, so, you know, he had to be a younger guy, unless, you know, That's unless true. he made it to 100, which seems unlikely. Um, it does. You know, he would have had to be a relatively younger man to be able to pull off another 40 years, so... Well, that's true. That's true. Well, I don't want to derail us. It just came to my mind, and I did remember sure. that text in in First Timothy five. Uh, but I just, like I said, it just seems um, 
it see, I don't know. It seems like I always picture him at just barely out of seminary age. Maybe that is. Maybe that's exactly what's going on here. I don't know. Well, I'd like to take the rest of the text in chunks, and so I'm just going to read verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Oh, brother, this is a convicting to me as, uh, as having been a brand new pastor at one time and uh, as having been a, a pastor in general, right? How often do we find ourselves hopefully not wandering away regularly into vain discussion, but just just sort of being put into position on the one hand to to say things that are confident, to make confident assertions, to be teachers of the law without always being fully equipped. On the other hand, as we mature in our pastoral ministry, I find myself making less confident assertions in terms of this, thus saith the Lord, and a lot more, uh, well, why don't we go to the scriptures? Why don't we put ourselves under the authority of the scriptures and find out? So I see him talking about uh, people um, who are not pastors, typically, who have not been called to that vocation, but because they think they know everything, they go around basically saying, thus saith the Lord. And it's just an interesting dichotomy because I think he's talking about these certain persons, but he's also giving Timothy the reminder as, let's say, a young or new pastor to say, well, you know, you have to caution against doing this yourself. Absolutely. This false doctrine, unhealthy teaching, is all over the place, and it springs up out of our own creative imaginations, I suppose, um, and out of the world all over the place. There's, uh, we're surrounded in these gray and latter days with, well, multiple false teachings uh, that we must be uh, on guard against. And why? I I love verse five in the middle of this, right? The, The aim of our charge. So the whole reason I'm giving you this charge, Timothy, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, So our goal is uh, this uh, love that comes from trusting in God's love for us in Christ, his saving work for us, that cleanses our heart so that we have a pure heart before God, you know, like King David prays, create and be a clean heart, O God. Uh, that is, uh, make out of nothing a clean heart. We don't, it's not like our heart's like sort of okay. <laughs> it's, you know, create a completely new heart so that this faith, the, the deliverance of what Jesus has done for us as we receive it by the work of the Holy Spirit pr- produces this pure heart, uh, this trusting heart. And, and out of that then comes love. 
uh, love toward God and his word and his truth and delighting in it, but then also love for, well, these false teachers uh, to have the care to correct them and stop them from harming others and love for the faithful uh, that they would be encouraged with healthy and good teaching. Uh, this full doctrine gets a bad rap, right? I, I remember in 1986, the Lutheran Witness did a survey asking people what they wanted more of in our Synod's magazine and what they wanted less of. The number one thing they wanted more of was biblical teaching. The number one thing they wanted less of was doctrine, <laughs> which is biblical teaching. Uh, right. Th this is, uh, uh, so it is absolutely necessary that pastors and all of us be rejecting false teaching, other teaching that's not biblical, because these things aren't healthy, they're going to harm us and hurt us and mislead us away from the true God and away from a faith that cleanses our hearts and shows itself then in uh, love toward God and her neighbor. I find it very fascinating that you brought up this idea that people wanted more Bible and less doctrine, and we can laugh at that because we know that doctrine really is nothing more than just a articulated teaching from the Bible. And right. you have this doctrine, and you either subscribe to it or you don't, or your doctrine is consistent with the Bible or it's not. Um, in these days, it seems that it's picking up on that word love it seems like the world is now, or even Christians saying, well, we want less doctrine and perhaps even less Bible and just more love, right? Just more love. Right. This, is the, this is with the misconception that true love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, as Paul says here, um, has nothing to do with a sincere faith, which he also says here. So true love for your neighbor, for the world, for yourself, for your children, for your parishioners, for your pastor, whatever vocation you end up in. Um, as it applies to doctrine, is that you must care about doctrine. You must be consistent with the Bible, uh, because love has been redefined a million different ways, but love obviously is an action. It is doing something for others, and as it comes to our Christian faith, it is telling them the truth in love, with gentleness and respect for sure, but not in a love that ignores reality. That's right, and you it, and because we love God, because he first loved us, we're going to listen to him and pay attention to what he actually says instead of telling him what he should have said or what we think he should have said. And, and that's, that's why we hold on to doctor. We hold on to the teaching that he's given us. We don't create it or make it, it's given to us by him, as is indeed that good conscience. He cleansed our conscience from our sin as we repent of our sins and are forgiven. So we hold on to that word. This, this is life and joy and peace for us in the, in the clear teaching of God's word. Well, we have a lot more to study about the clear teaching of God's Word here in Paul's letter to Timothy, but we will continue that after we take just a few moments for some messages. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, uh, Pastor Fleming and I will keep going with 1 Timothy 1. See you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Fleming, Associate Pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Executive Director at Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's show, listen, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or drop me a message on Facebook. I love hearing from you. And really, I just want to thank you for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. As you know, you can catch us on the airwaves, on demand at KFUO.org. And for those who prefer to listen on the go, you can download the KFUO app or subscribe to the program on your favorite podcasting platform. It means the world to me that you're here. And thank you for telling your friends and family about the program. Now, Pastor Fleming, before the show, we were, you know, just getting it. We're only at verse seven. There's just, it's so deep and we really could spend so much time in every little section. But I just wanted to bring out a couple more things I'd love to hear your comments on. And the first is it says not only to not teach any different doctrine, which is what we were talking about before the break, but also to not devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. It seems to me that that defines doctrine in the sense that what we believe is guided by what the scriptures teach and not, you know, what we think or what we conjure up or, or, you know, the, maybe they did, maybe they did have this issue today, but back then, pardon me, but today we have issue of media, you know, movies, TV, books, social media, and so much of what people think they know about the faith, about Christ, about the Bible, about God, that doesn't find its source anywhere in the scriptures. It's just what people have been sharing with each other. So um, I'd like to hear your comments about that a little bit. You know, Ephesus was uh, known for its amphitheater. Theater was a big deal in Ephesus. Um, Oedipus Rex was their favorite uh, uh, play there in Ephesus, which is a horrendously awful play. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and uh, and the the chorus in Oedipus Rex is something like. Uh, you know, better not to be born or if born to die shortly after birth. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a depressing, a awful view of life. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they're, they're, and they've got the, the cult of Diana there. So they're full, there's, there's all these myths there and the endless genealogies, probably some Jewish stuff, maybe like prayer and Jabez kind of silliness um, in our day. All of this is speculating. It's just kind of making up stuff, thinking about maybe this is the way it is. I don't, I don't know about you, Pastor Boot. Well, I'm pretty sure you'd agree with me on this. That on my deathbed, I don't want to kind of go. Well, I sort of think this might work. <laughs> I, you know, I I need something that is actually given by God. This this economy, this stewardship uh, from God that is by faith. Right, that our Lord's done it all for us. 
some famous modern ones would be something like, um, oh, you know, the Bible teaches that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. from Wrath of Khan, Star Trek, not anywhere found in the Bible. And so we see these little uh, teachings that, you know, might sound nice, but they, yeah, they come from the culture. So if you had people in Ephesus going around saying, well, you know, it'd be better not to be born, or even if not that, just to die soon after being born. You know, that's what God says. And then someone's going to have to call them out and say, well, that's not what God says. That's what that play says that everybody's all, you know, interested in down at the amphitheater. But, you know, that happens over time. Those things kind of get into the fabric of society. And, and this is why we get things like, I, do, I want more Bible and less doctrine, or I want less Bible and doctrine and more love, because people yes. are not judging these things by what the scripture says, but by what they're but their hearts are leading them into speculations. God helps those um, and who the, help themselves. <laughs> God helps those who help themselves. That's another yeah. huge one, right? Yeah. Totally or, bad. or, and I, I don't think many people fall for this one, but uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Now, <laughs> I think people know that that's from, um, oh my goodness, I, the movie escaped me. What's the name of the movie? A yeah, Wonderful it's Life. A it's wonderful a Wonderful Life. life. Yeah. yeah, they know that's from the movie, but what that's taught people is that either that people become angels. So they think, oh, when I die, you know, there's a, there's a new angel. And so people have theology affected by what they see. And so verse six, certain persons by swerving from these, these being the sincere faith and love and pure heart, uh, have wandered into vain discussion. And these are the type of people who are wanting to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. But that doesn't prevent them from just saying, this is the truth. Uh, and we see that both among perhaps young pastors, and I think we all have struggled with that maybe a little bit, but even among lay people who have not been called to that vocation, and yet um, instead of seeking out education, they just sort of whatever they read online, they, they then promote. You know, I've been encouraged lately. I, I haven't run into many young pastors who uh, do anything like that. Um, but I, I mean, I know there are probably somewhere young pastors, but at least within uh, the Missouri Synod, I've, I've been really impressed by the young uh, young men who are serving, that they are careful to ground everything in Scripture. And, you know, if I think all of those who are listening, uh, if they have a pastor that stays faithful to the Scriptures and grounds things there, boy, we should give thanks and praise to God for that. Because, you know, Jim Jones was... Uh, a old so-called faithful disciples of Christ uh, pastor, um, and then you know lost his bearings completely. He's the guy who started Jonestown and led to the death of you know thousands of people, or hundreds, whatever it was. Um, you know, as he had them drink the poison Kool Aid to die with him. Uh, you know, I, this. Well, there's it's it's easy for pastors to think it's about themselves and their false teaching, you know, whatever they think is true, and to rely on that instead of what our Lord gives us. Like you, I'm also very encouraged by the formation process for pastors in the LCMS, uh, but you know, I've, I've also seen it a little bit too. So we're just speaking in realities, right? So this right. is also why right. congregations have a duty to their pastors, especially if they're new, and the reason why they're new, and I don't think it's because they. Uh, they're not exactly here. It's not people who have no understanding that want to be teachers of the law but haven't been educated. Sometimes this 
uh, error, the sin comes out when they're put in this position of of having to be the font of all knowledge for their parishioners. And, you know, they're afraid that if they say things like, well, I don't know, or I need to look that up, that somehow that will make them lose credibility. And it's a spiritual thing. It's a it's a maturity thing. You know, eventually you you find that saying you don't know is much better than just even making an educated guess sometimes, unless, of course, you identify as an educated guess. Every now and then in Bible study, I'll say something like, okay, this isn't thus saith the Lord, this is thus thinketh Phil. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you make those distinctions, you can work with people. But yeah, this is something that all people can fall into, I believe. Amen. Well, why don't we get some more text under? So 8, 9, 10, and 11. Here we go. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he makes a shift here. Uh, he's still talking about sound doctrine, but he gives some pretty practical examples of sins against this doctrine. Yes, he does. He, he really goes through the Ten Commandments here uh, pretty much in order, right? So he starts with sins against the first table of the law, uh, against God, um, and then uh, the second table of the law, and they're in order, right? So it starts with, you know, uh, com- honor your father and mother, uh, you should not mar- murder, uh, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal. That enslaver word is for uh, those who kidnapped people to enslave them or and then sell them as slaves. Um, boy, I guess that's Joseph's brothers, come to think of it. Um, uh, and uh, And then liars would be the eighth commandment, of course. Um, uh, yeah, so this, uh, these kind of sins have been around, uh, the entire history of mankind pretty much. And the law is there to show us that this is sin and it's rebellion against God's good order. The only kind of odd thing I think here is, is, uh, perhaps this statement, the law is not laid down for the just, uh, and uh, that would be the righteous. Uh, and I think the point there is this, that uh, those of us who trust in Christ, the law is still a guide for us on how to live, but it has no right to condemn us before God anymore as we trust in Christ. I think that's its main point, or to uh, force us into submission. Uh, rather, the law now largely functions for us as a guide to, to how to live. So that I, I think that's the concept Paul's trying to get across there. Uh, I think all so of too. this. I, yep, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think if we uh, speculated vainly, <laughs> as he yeah. warned us not to do, we yeah. might be tempted to think, oh, well, you know, this is first and second law stuff or use of the law stuff, but there is no third use, right? there. Once you have been redeemed, then there's no real use for the law because, oh, he says right here that, that the law is for uh, the unjust. But the problem with that is it ignores Paul's teachings everywhere else, which we're not supposed to do. Uh, And we are ignoring the context too. And so the context here, I think, is it's primarily a 
first use of the law argument, from which, of course, we can delve a little bit into the second use. First use being, for those listening at home, the idea that that law uh, prevents sin or discourages sin, uh, the law written on people's hearts, even if they don't believe, they kind of know what's right and what's wrong. It keeps society on track. It's a, it's a curb, we might tell our confirmands. And the second use being that, that mirror, you know, where we look at the law and we say, I've not kept the law perfectly, and we are convicted in our sins. It makes room for the Holy Spirit to, to work and give us the gospel. And as, as the guest here said, the third use being a guide or you know, a map to how we live our Christian life. Uh, but we, we see this here, and he gives these examples uh, because I, I'm going to say that there were people misusing the law. Uh, misusing the law specifically in the context of desiring to be teachers of the law without knowing what they're talking about. Um, and so he says, you know, it's, it's, listen, here's a, here's a use for the law for you. And that's how I've read it, but you know, maybe I'm taking it too shallowly. No, I th well, I think you're right on. Right. Exactly. And these, these are real problems in Ephesus <laughs> um, uh, as they are pretty much everywhere. Right. I think if the if the problem were something else, he would phrase it a different way. But this is a practical letter. It's pragmatic in many ways. And he's not seeking to give us a con, an entire uh, dogmatics textbook here, although there's lots of great stuff in it. He's tr also trying to address some real problems. And, and we see so, you know, he gives us examples of these. Those who strike their moms and dads, murderers. And, you, and I love how you pointed out that this follows roughly the Ten Commandments, the two tables, uh, the sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality and slavers, liars, perders, and whatever. What we also see is that many of these things, as you have also said, have been around since mankind was made, but also tend to be what the world celebrates. Now you're like, well, well the world doesn't celebrate murders. Well, in this day and age, there is a murder that is celebrated in the practice yes. of abortion. Well, people yes. don't celebrate striking their fathers and mothers. Yeah, but plenty of people celebrate not following traditions of old, not honoring mom and dad. Um, obviously, homosexuality is very clear here, but even just general sexual immorality, um, enslavers, liars, perjurers, a lot of these things, you know, well, you have to lie. You have to break the break the rules to get ahead in life. You have to step on other people. And, and there's a lot of injustices done that is celebrated by the world. And so we see here uh, a giant mirror on society, even today. I concur. I, in fact, I, years ago, I, used, I noted that pretty much every movie I've ever seen glorifies violating the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, and, and holds this up as a great thing. I, it, there's always a rebellion against authority, uh, a wrongful rebellion against authority in pretty much every story. Uh, and, and it's held up as a good thing. Right. And, and, and that would be true, again, with all the other commandments as well. But just to uh, echo what you're saying on the striking father and mother, the yeah. disobedience. Mm -hmm. So anything else about that before we get into uh, what we might call the gospel? Yeah. So I, verse 11, I think it, there's this odd little phrase. It just kind of jumped out at me. The you know, this glorious gospel or the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, right? So he is again emphasizing that the Lord gave this to him, right? But he'll talk about that some more coming up. But it is this 
glorious gospel. And I was reading uh, uh, Johann Gerhardt, um, and he notes that this probably, uh, this glorious gospel phrase probably refers to kind of three different things, teaching how Christ gloriously through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension and his triumphant procession brings sinners into uh, his glory. Second, that how the gospel message manifest the the uh, the glory of God, much like the angels announce at the birth of Jesus, right? Glory to God in the highest. This is uh, that God shows himself most who he is in saving sinners like us. And uh, and then ultimately, this glorious gospel also is glorious in that it shows us the way to the, the eternal glory of God um, through faith in Christ. So I just thought that was kind of fun. Oh, Absolutely. And it introduces, it's a nice hinge verse as he comes into this next section. And I'm going to take this also into chunks before we get to the end. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal glory. To the King of all the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that actually is not the end of our opening chapter. We'll get to the end later. But it sure sounds like it. He's kind of wrapping up his initial point, and that is that Christ is so great that he could save even a sinner like Paul. Isn't it beautiful? And you can't help but break into a doxology, can you, if, if you're Paul, as as you reflect on what God did in pulling him out of rebellion against the true God, ignorant rebellion against the true God, but rebellion against the true God nonetheless, and bringing him into the uh, God's kingdom and life and forgiveness and mercy and all these things, right? So he's got to rejoice in this this amazing God and give honor and glory to him forever. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, a, a Paul looking uh, back on uh, how he was on the way to uh, Damascus to persecute Christians, uh, which I always love. Uh, Jesus doesn't say to him, why are you persecuting my believers? He says, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and so I, I take this as great encouragement for all of us when we suffer for the gospel of Jesus. Uh, it, Jesus bears this with us still. Uh, this is happening to him with us. Uh, when, when we suffer, he bears it on our behalf and, uh, and happily intervened and, and knocked Paul off his high horse and uh, turned him around and and uh, strengthened him uh, to be, and judged him faithful even when he wasn't, right? He he uh, decided that uh, by equipping 
Paul, by giving him strength, he would be able to carry out this vital work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, even though Paul didn't deserve it. And it is the abundant patience of our Lord that's displayed in saving somebody like Paul, uh, saving Saul and making him Paul. And, uh, I, you know, honestly, aren't we all sort of demonstrations of God's patience that all of us are still in his kingdom? And uh, I also love that Paul puts this all in the present tense, like you so beautifully emphasized when you read this, Pastor, uh, that... that um, I am the foremost. I I am the foremost sinner. Not I was the foremost. Um, I still am. I still am a sinner. And he's still displaying his grace and patience and mercy by giving me life in his kingdom. Well, the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is because when he says in verse, looks like 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, I just wanted to make it clear that he wasn't forgiven because he didn't know any better because he nope. then asserts that he continues to not know any better. So to speak, <laughs> he continues to struggle against that sin and Christ continues to be merciful. Yeah, it's, it's sort of piling it on. I, I, I didn't even know what I was doing and I, I was still acting like I did know what I was doing. <laughs> I, I don't think he's excusing himself. I think he's piling it on. No. The only other thing maybe he's saying is, you know, it's not like I knew all this like you do. And then rejected it. Um, right. Now, that is true. Perhaps. I think there is a distinction made there. Um, there is – Paul does make a distinction elsewhere about you know people who know the truth and then abandoning it. You know, I also see here a little bit, and I don't read too much into it, but now I'm kind of back to desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions because while Paul, I do believe, is speaking about a particular false teacher in the church – I'm sure he can't help but think about how he stood as a teacher of the law, as a Pharisee, making all these confident assertions against Christians and the Christ, and yet he didn't know what he was talking about. So I'm, certainly he sees himself in that too. I think you're I think you're onto something there. Yeah. Which also gives us, I think, a perspective when we, as pastors or even as parishioners who care about others, exercise that law on others. It's not so that we can say we're better, but rather it's to say, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, I, I will say this, though. I've also seen this um, in the in the reverse sin, I guess. I don't know how to put it, the, the error in the reverse way. Growing up down south, it, it almost it became so common that, you know, people would just declare themselves to be pastors and they would open up like a house church or they'd get a steel building and open up a church. And invariably, they would then stand up and talk about how miserable sinners they were and how they were maybe alcoholics or drug addicts and God, you know, saved them, which is a wonderful testimony. But then he'd say, well, then they would chase me and he chased me and I would resist him. And finally I gave in and now I'm a preacher. And then you would have other people give testimonies and it kind of became a one-upsmanship to show how miserable of a sinner you were to demonstrate how good God's grace was. And I took a bunch of kids from Illinois, a bunch of Lutheran kids, uh, when I was a vicar down on a trip, and we were serving an uh, alcoholic um, rehab center as a mission trip, and then we had a little service where they were giving these testimonies, and they wanted our kids to give testimonies, but our poor kids were like, I don't know, I was baptized, and I really haven't done a lot of things wrong. You know, and like their testimonies didn't stack up to these powerful demonstrations of God's power. So what I'm trying to say is I think sometimes this idea that Paul is this, this chief of sinners 
isn't really for us to emulate. <laughs> it's just to you know point to Christ. I completely concur with you, and I, I there's such a danger in that almost bragging about how bad I was, and there's right. almost I. I, well, I don't want to judge people's motives, but there's almost sort of a delight in hearing how, what bad stuff you did. There's a certain kind of a voyeurism to it. Um, yeah. Well, but happily, Paul puts all the focus on uh, that, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, uh, which is, uh, he does, which is he does. the whole Let's, point. Yeah. I'm, we're getting really close to the end, so I, I can't help but get these last verses in. And Absolutely. so this is basically him summing it up. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Uh, you know what? We could probably spend an hour on these texts. Uh, uh, but even so, we just have a couple of minutes left. I'd love to hear your thoughts before we end. So I think there's so much here. I want to call attention to just this, uh, that you may wage the good warfare. And when we think of warfare, we usually think of taking enemy territory or, you know, fighting and all that. Look at what he says the warfare is, holding faith and a good conscience. And I think this is the daily battle for you, for me, for every Christian to continue to hold on to faith in Christ and a good conscience, a forgiven, cleansed conscience. And this, this battle, I think, happens uh, by Satan trying to get us to sin or somebody to sin against us, and then uh, coming along and accusing us of not being worthy of God uh, and Christ's kingdom because of our sin. No, no, no. He forgives us. Uh, and uh, Or getting us to quit loving our neighbor because they've sinned against us and we have to every day forgive them. And this warfare, this is the real battle, I think, every day to hold on to what we've been given in Christ, this uh, certainty of our salvation through his death and resurrection, and hold on to the cleansed conscience he gave us through the forgiveness of our sins and our baptism into his death and resurrection. On that beautiful note, we'll end. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Fleming, Associate Pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Executive Director at Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you. Monday, folks, we keep on going with chapter two. Don't miss it. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.